This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who only likes guns when Sarah Connor is wielding them, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Rick Smith, the founder and CEO of Axon, the company formerly known as Taser International. In addition to Taser, Axon is best known for the body cameras it makes for police officers. And in July, it said it would not embed facial recognition technology in those cameras because of concerns over its accuracy. Rick is also the author of a book about gun control called The End of Killing, How Our Newest Technologies Can Solve Humanity's Oldest Problem. I'm very much looking forward to this interview. Rick, welcome to Recode Decode. Awesome, thanks. So let's have a little bit of background about the company, about Axon. Uh, You know, everyone knows what a taser is, and tasers have been deployed in different ways. But explain to me how you started the company and how it's gone to doing body cameras. And and I want to sort of break down how how big a business it is and where you're deployed. Yeah, so in the early 1990s, I was living in Europe. (laughs) I was in graduate school, and two of my high school friends had been recently shot and killed by a businessman with a gun in the glove box. And it was a situation that just— started as an argument and spun out of control. And three lives were ruined that day. My two friends are dead. And the guy who killed them is spending his life in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never met him, but from everything I know, he didn't set out to kill anybody that Mm -hmm. day. He just had a gun gun. to defend himself and got in a bad situation. So the light bulb that went on for me is obviously guns are a very divisive issue in this country. But for me, it seems really strange. Like, why are we still using these medieval weapons that shoot literally balls of flying metal metal at people. And I came to conclude, I think the way out of this is the way we get out of most real problems, that we invent our way out. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing some research and discovered— Were you had a background in this? No, I was—well, I I did have a background in in biology, in Mm -hmm. neurobiology in particular. Right. But I was—I hadn't had a job yet. Right. So you were just studying in Europe. Yep. Where, where, where did the shooting take place? In Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay. So it was after an altercation. Yep. After an altercation. So this happened and you thought, I'll invent something. Well, yeah. I, I uh, had an entrepreneurial uh, focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd seen my dad been a serial entrepreneur. And uh, as I was debating, you know, American gun violence with these Europeans, it just struck me that this isn't a problem our government has shown any particular aptitude at solving. Right. Um, and ultimately— with 300 and some million firearms in the hands of the public, like the horse has kind of left the barn and right. getting them back would be really hard. But if we could give something better to people, you start to tease the logic of it all apart. Mm-hmm. The reason that people use guns to defend themselves is to stop somebody who's threatening them. Mm-hmm. And if we go even a little bit deeper, like into policing, like police are actually, they don't intentionally kill anyone. But well, sometimes the, they do. But go ahead and go ahead. The, well, from a, at least a legal and policy right, perspective, right. the reason they use lethal force is it's the only thing that reliably stops somebody today. Sure. So to me, that's a technology problem. Mm-hmm. If we could create Captain Kirk's phaser from Star Trek, then there'd be Make no reason stun, to— set it to stun. Exactly. Right. And, and so, so that's what we do. So you had created Taser. Talk about going about creating the Taser business. So uh, I just started doing research, and I discovered the actual Taser weapon had been around for over 20 years— It was invented by a NASA scientist back in the 60s. The early generations were pretty buggy, like many technologies. And it turned out he lived in Arizona, near where my parents lived. And so I dialed 411. For those listeners who may not know this before (laughs) Google, that's how you'd get a phone number. 911 Uh, was for the police. But go ahead. And um, I got his number, called him up. And next thing I know, here I am, 23 years old, standing on his doorstep. He's 73. Mm -hmm. And... We just sort of fell in love over this idea. 
that he'd been working on for a long time, and I convinced him to give it another shot. So in doing that, you wanted to create something that was debilitating but non-lethal, right? Correct? Yep. The, the idea that you would be able to stop someone in some way. And again, the idea wasn't from Star Trek, or set phasers to stun. Well, some of the, the inspiration, I'd say, <laughs> came from science fiction. <laughs> and then when I discovered somebody had already made some progress in this direction— that's where I went to get started. So what were the difficulties of creating something like this? Obviously, that a non-lethal thing could be lethal. I mean, there's if you do them wrong, they're they're quite lethal. And, and it also affects the neurobiology of something. Explain what a taser does. Yeah, so as you and I are sitting— When it started and then what it does now. As you and I are sitting here talking today, there are numerous electrical signals in our body. Mm-hmm. All the firing of the neurons is all electrically controlled. And the idea of a taser is that we plug into the human body— and we, it's like a remote control. We flood the system with signals, and it causes your muscles to spasm. It's a little bit like an induced seizure is mm-hmm. probably the best analogy. But it does not require causing any physical damage. So it's really a command and control instrument. Think of it like radio jamming. Mm-hmm. We're jamming the communication so that we can impair somebody's ability in a temporary yet reversible way. So I've been shot with it seven times. It's certainly not fun, mm-hmm. but the intention is... Again, to stop somebody without requiring inflicting death or permanent injury. And to replace among police officers or people this device, to have a taser if you're in a, you know, I know know several women who have them, um, to to stop someone from just disable someone, essentially. Exactly. So you started this. What's changed from the technology of this? So the early taser generations— they were underpowered, frankly. Rodney mm-hmm. King was shot famously with an LAPD taser, and mm-hmm. it failed to stop him, and the officers went to their batons, and the rest is catastrophic mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. So one of the early things we had to do was actually go back to the lab and determine how we could tune these things so they would actually stop really focused, aggressive people. Quickly, quickly. And immediately, yep. Right. And that we launched that technology in 1999, mm-hmm. sort of the upgraded, revamped, taser weapons. And since then, it really took off in law enforcement, where they're pretty ubiquitously used now throughout most of the English-speaking world and now being adopted in Italy and France. So what is the what are the terms of engagement, I guess, around a taser? Do people die from using tasers? Presumably uh, yeah. heart attacks. Uh, actually, that's what is so interesting. Um, yes, these are not risk-free. There have been deaths. There have been about 28 deaths directly caused by the taser. Mm-hmm. The biggest risk is head injuries from falls. People fall. Okay. So about 6 million people have been hit with tasers. Uh, about, I think, 18 falls and 8 ignitions of flammable liquids, like in a meth lab or if somebody's oh, wow. doused themselves in gasoline. Mm-hmm. You know, it can ignite because it's flammables. doing an electrical signal, correct? Yeah, it's an electric spark. Right. That's right. Right. So that'll that can uh, set up. Now, but there's a lot of debate about whether or not tasers affect the heart. Now, it's very hard to prove a negative. Mm-hmm. But in all the testing we've done, we actually see there's a very significant safety margin. In fact, the most prolific inventor of pacemakers and cardiac devices is on my board. Mm-hmm. He's taken shots directly to the chest, and he and our medical you advisors— people with a pacemaker? That's a risky uh, thing. Well, pacemakers actually have to withstand, by law, no, I the cardiac defibrillators. I still wouldn't do it. Yeah. I still it's, wouldn't do it. It's very hard to overcome people's intuition that right. this electricity wouldn't affect the heart. But your point is, you're trying to you're going to try to replace guns, which are absolutely deadly most of, much of the time. But they have about a fifty percent fatality rate, and we're about one in ten thousand fatality rate. So you you developed this thing, and, and just from a science point of view, you're putting an electric charge into a body, right, from yep. a distance, right? It travels. There's so we fire. Two wires, effectively, that make the connection, and then the power supply remains in the operator's hand, and we're transmitting energy down the wires. So when you click the button—I've never used a taser, so when you click the button, it tases someone, right? Yeah, it delivers a five-second burst of electricity. Right. And then people multiply tase people? I'm sorry to be so stupid, but I I want people to understand. This is actually a great question um, because, yes, particularly— so the way to think about it, the taser is a stimulation device Mm -hmm. that is running for a set period of time. During that five seconds, somebody is impaired or incapacitated, Mm -hmm. depending on— you want to spread the electrodes out so they they fire at a spreading angle Mm -hmm. because the electricity, you want to actually spread it through enough nerves that it incapacitates. If you shoot somebody really close or you hit them in the forearm, it might impair the the muscles in that area but not the whole body. But even if you get a great spread and it's highly incapacitating, the moment it turns off— it's just like when I stop flexing my muscles, they're right back to normal. Mm-hmm. So 
particularly if police are dealing with somebody who's high on cocaine or yeah. methamphetamines, they're they're right back into the fight. And so sometimes police do have to use it multiple times while they're trying to get— Or use the cuffs. opportunity to incapacitate them, yeah. correct, or cuff them, presumably, right? Yeah, we, we train, we call it cuffing under power. And, and talk uh, about the training. But how many people—so tasers, how wide is it on consumers versus police officers or uh, security officers? Yeah, so overall there's uh, a similar number in the field. There's probably uh, 500,000 consumer tasers and five or 600,000 that are being used— you know, by police officers. Mm-hmm. And so 500, 600,000 of them. So yeah. how many do you sell a year? What's the... Uh, so about 80,000 uh, into police work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, probably 20,000 or so into consumer. And the Police cost, tend to replace the them. Co- the, yeah, they tend to replace them because they use them. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you do training for police officers when they're using these, correct? Correct. They just, you don't just send them tasers and good luck, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it is an area where training is really important. And we have really extended ourselves into training. Well, a lot of people don't realize there's 18,000 police departments. Yes, there are. I do realize that. Yeah. yeah and and for, you know, they have varying levels of sophistication, and they may have access to varying levels of expertise. So uh, we've just taken on a larger role because, you know, we know this technology really well. And uh, so we're taking on more and more of the training. Just actually today, I believe, we or yesterday, we announced— uh, we're using VR now to do empathy training. Mm-hmm. So turns out police officers are called to many different situations, sure. including people who are suicidal or have schizophrenia. So we just did a suicide uh, prevention experience where it's one thing for you to tell a police officer something, but right. VR is powerful yeah, it's because it's immersive. There's Jeremy Balenson at Stanford. There's all kinds of people working on this idea that you can be— My issues—there was a really interesting thing that Lorraine Powell jobbed backed around immigrants where you were in a VR setting. Um, it's, in, it's a really interesting area. The question is, how can you make someone actually scared? How can you make someone actually feel? Like, can you inject them with some feeling? I, I was talking—you know, the idea of seeing it is better than hearing it, but that, or hearing it, you know, someone's story, but— I wonder how you can actually make someone feel, you know, police officers scared on the other side of an arrest. Yeah. So, uh, so for example, the, what we did with our schizophrenia mm-hmm. training experience. So we put the officer through a scenario where we're, we're putting him through as the police officer and they deal with the schizophrenic. Uh, and then we rewind it where they're in the schizophrenic's shoes. Right. Now, of course, we can't give them schizophrenia, right. but— we can play audio video stimulus with the help of mental health experts. Right. It's just it's, interesting. And it, it's sort of it's intended it's sort of like feeling like you're in a horror movie, right? right? Where there's there's voices and there you're having strange perceptions. And then when you see a police officer come and point a gun at you and a flashlight, flashing lights, and they're yelling at you, it, you sort of suddenly understand, oh wow. Yeah, this might trigger somebody who's right. on the edge of their seat. Right. So you do these as part of the trainings. Is is it another product? I uh, know it's it's embedded in our our taser training. Taser programs. training. This is and, relatively. And new. so you've been doing taser training for as long as you founded the company. This is the original thing. But then you moved into body cameras. Explain that. What other products do you have besides body cameras and tasers? Uh, and then we run the largest cloud software product in public safety. We have about seventy petabytes of police audio video data. So we run okay. our, our body cameras and software. It's sort of like the iTunes ecosystem Right, for but they're police. together. They're yeah. together. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, so the, talk about the bo- getting into body cameras. When did you do that? So this started in uh, around 2007 or 8. Mm-hmm. And so we launched tasers around 2000, uh-huh. and they actually exploded in popularity mm-hmm. because police officers found them super, super helpful. And so many uh, comedies in Hollywood. They're yeah, actually, they did. Uh, it's kind yep. of crazy how many times I've seen them in movies. And Anyway. Yeah, we've become part of the pop culture right. lexicon. Uh, but as they became more widely used, there were legitimate concerns about overuse and abuse. And so, again, you take a solutions mind to it, mm-hmm. set to it, and you say, well, we can argue about whether police are doing good things or bad things, or what if we recorded it? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's that simple insight got us into the body cameras to say, okay, this is it's a way to— control for bad officers, hold them accountable, and protect good officers who might be falsely accused of things. Right. And so when you—this idea that came up, had there been cameras on officers yet? Uh, there had been cameras in patrol cars. Right, on, but, the, on the deck, the deck cam. The, yeah, the de- literally VHS tapes. Right, and, right. Uh, so it, it was becoming Dash possible cams. that you could do wearable cameras, but nobody had really done it mm-hmm. yet at Because there had been all kinds of wearable cameras that consumers were using. Yeah, like GoPro right. and all that. Right. Is that where the impetus came or the just the, just that there should be, this is a great new product for us to offer? I, I mean, you know, it's hard to know how much inspiration we took from consumer products, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was 
a combination of of seeing what's happening. We're in the serving space. the police. This is something that could help them do a better job. Exactly. So talk about the early cameras, the the, the body cams. Uh, well, our first cameras, like many first gen products, mm-hmm. we didn't get them uh, right on the first attempt. What, how so? Uh, they were a little too big. We built our own touchscreen computer. I'd say we perhaps got a little uh, carried away with all the things we could engineer and it mm-hmm. grew in complexity, size, cost. Uh, and then it was our second generation where we really focused on simplifying the product experience. Mm-hmm. And that's when they started to take off, which would have been around 2011 or 2012. All right. And how did you introduce them to police? This is what we're going to make for you. Uh, you. You know, there's big conferences that we go to. And then also we we would start to show them in our taser training classes. So uh, taser weapons require police be trained typically annually, mm-hmm. and for instructors, at least every two years. So we're putting about 10,000 police instructors a year through training, and we would just, you know, showcase the cameras there as well. Hey, if you're using taser weapons, you've probably, you're aware of the public controversy about them. Here's a way to address public concern with cameras. Mm-hmm. And what was the reception of police officers at first? So with body cameras? Yeah. Uh, not good. Yeah. Uh, as you can imagine, when you... So police do feel like they're under siege, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of negativity in the press, et cetera. And so the initial reaction was, what, you don't trust me? Now I got to wear a camera and you're going to record what I do all day. What we found, though, is once they use it for a while, like within about 90 days, police will refuse to go on patrol without it because they quickly realize, oh, if I'm doing the right thing, now I'm above reproach because mm-hmm. I have video of what I was dealing with. Whereas otherwise, it, everything is a he said, she said. Right, which is it's a complaint, and then and people assume the police are lying, presumably. Yeah, well, it depends on you know obviously your personal point of view, but I think the 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 case that best exemplified this was the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Right, people that believe police believe that that officer was probably fighting for his life. People who don't believe police thought it was a murder, um, and. We all formed our opinions based on our biases, and there was very little fact. Very little fact. Okay. We're here with Rick Smith. He's the CEO of Axon and the author of The End of Killing, How Our Newest Technologies Can Solve Humanity's Oldest Problem. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Rick Smith. He's the CEO of Axon. And Axon, if you don't know, makes what used to be called Taser International. In addition to tasers, it's best known for the body cameras it makes for police officers. And in July, it said it would not embed facial recognition technology in those cameras because of concerns over its accuracy. We're still talking about cameras themselves. So you you bring them to the police officer. First, they distrust you for putting them in. And why should we be stalked, essentially, even though they're public servants? And and I would like cameras in all public facilities, but there there are controversies around privacy and, and stuff like that. What was your argument to them uh, about privacy? Like, well, they're not, they're public servants, so they shouldn't be private. And then when they're acting on the public's behalf in public. Yeah, I, I, as with anything, you have to make it personal to the individual. So we really focused in on, you know, look, you as a police officer get accused of all sorts of terrible things. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, it's not true, mm-hmm. at least, you know, because I work with police, I'll admit I have a bias sure. for believing like, that they're good people. I've met so many good people. And so for us, it was like, look, this isn't about mistrusting you. This is about giving you the tools for you to show what actually happened. And if you're doing the right thing, the truth will set you free. Right. And that and their bad apples should be caught. Yeah. And I'll good. tell you, nobody hates a bad cop right. more than a good cop because mm-hmm. it gives the profession a bad name. And they want to get— 
bad apples out of policing as much as anyone. Right. And so you're, what these cameras do, talk about from a technological, the, the latest version, and how much they cost, police, depends on how many they buy, I assume. Uh, they're like four to 800 bucks in that range. Each. And they wear them on their shoulders, uh, typically. Yeah, typically somewhere on the chest or shoulder. Right. Okay. And they are small. Explain the device and this, the, the technology uh, behind it. Uh, so it's, you know, I've got an iPhone Max here. It's right. uh, maybe two-thirds this size, but quite a bit thicker. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have to have a 14-hour battery, and it's recording video all day, which is a high-intensity processor, right. uh, you know, a process. Now, we don't record the entire shift. Uh, it's buffering video. And then once the officer signals it to start, we then begin a recording. We grab the previous 30 seconds of video, preserve that, until they turn it off. And then we've now added all sorts of triggers and mechanisms. So if they pull a gun out of the holster, there's a wireless signal that turns the camera on. I see. Or if they turn on the the lights and siren in the vehicle. Uh, Candidly, where I see this going, Mm -hmm. long term, we're already recording the whole day. It's just officer privacy issues that when body cameras were new, I think there was a lot of concern. Well, we don't want to be recorded all day. We'll only record the critical incidents. But then what happens is occasionally... And especially when their adrenaline's pumping, they forget forget to turn the camera on. Then you're relying on sensors to turn it on. I think the where we'll be in another 10 years is the camera will just store the entire day's shift. It'll upload the critical segments. But if, God forbid, they forget to turn the camera on and something bad happens, they could go back and mm-hmm. recapture that you know, before the upload event. Before the episode, so they don't have to turn it on or off themselves. Yeah, it would, it would, well, I think they would still turn it on and off, but these would be adding markers effectively. I see. So pulling their uh, their gun out or putting a siren on or a call that where they have to respond to something, correct, could all set it off. Yeah, that's, so we have sensors that do all that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the challenge you start to get into is then, you know, officers are pulling their guns out actually for lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. They may be, you know, going into a restaurant, they want to, like, uh, or they're checking the gun or, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, one officer is turning on everyone else's cameras. So then sometimes they start to get annoyed that, okay, my camera's turning on all day. Right. And so then they may start to disable some of those signals. So it's, it's actually fairly tricky to get it to where it's only turning it on when right. it's really so supposed to. So now they only go on if officers turn them on, right? Well, except for the sensor. Except for, except the, for these sensors. sensors yeah. Do you think they should be recorded all day? Uh, well, enormous amount of data. That we'll get into that in a second. You know, there's also what about bathroom breaks? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are, like, you know, these are human beings as well. They have some privacy rights. So mm-hmm. if they're not on a call and they take a, uh, not on uh, deployed in a police mission, they're in their patrol cruiser and they take a personal phone call. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably have a right to privacy. You know, not to be physically recording in a public record system, personal conversation. So it gets a little. Right, right. So when you convince them to start using, how many are deployed now? Are you in all those 18,000 or? We're we're certainly not in all of them. We have about 350,000 cameras deployed around the world. So that make you the biggest? Uh, We are. Who else competes in that area? Uh, So Motorola uh, just acquired uh, our our biggest competitor, which is WatchGuard. They do cameras in patrol cars and wearable cameras. There's another company called Digital Ally that's a a direct competitor. Uh, Panasonic is in this space. They have in-car and body cameras. Uh, and then there's a couple others. And talk about selling to police and these kind of things. I mean, you, the, the, right now, they use them now. Everybody uses them. Talk about the process. Who buys those? Who, just, who decides, the chief or who? It, it depends on the agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, in bigger agencies, they delegate it down. Uh, body cameras are typically purchased more by IT people because mm-hmm. they quickly realize managing the data is the hard part. Sure, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, and then the taser weapons are usually bought by the same people that are by buying guns. guns. Yeah, right. And so you convince people to use them, and the idea is to protect good officers and not protect bad officers. I want to get into later the idea that citizens also have their own uh, cameras all, on all the time. What's been the experience of police officers so far? They think this is a good thing or a bad thing? or Almost universally, after a few months of wearing a camera, they will not go on patrol without it. So they quickly become Because support. it protects them. Because it protects them. Right. I mean, police officers take more verbal abuse than about anyone except air, you know, air traffic mm-hmm. or, you know, air, airline Stewards, reservation yeah, right. people when there's a storm. Right. Uh, they, they take a lot of abuse. Uh-huh. And, you, and then when you record the, you're also recording their audio and how they interact with the public. Yep. I saw an astonishing uh, thing. It was an art project where they took all the voices of, of police officers talking to people. Um, and there was a lot of abuse stuff. It was really interesting. At the same time, they talked differently to different races. It was really interesting. There were word clouds, and it was, like, fascinating the difference 
between them talking to white people and black people. It was sort of shocking. Not surprising, but sort of weird to see in one place. Do you think it's used as sort of a learning thing of how—you're talking about doing empathy with um, with police officers. Do, do you think they realize—because they're getting abuse from citizens, for one. But at the same time, does it help in any way? Oh, we're in the early days there. So, I mean, you're, you're going exactly where this is headed. Mm-hmm. It starts out as, hey, this is a way to oversee officers and protect them from allegations. Right. Then you move into more things like, well, what else can we do with this video? In a lot of cases, it really streamlines the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, in domestic violence disputes in Australia, there's a great study that showed just recording victims of domestic violence the night of the event was far more impactful in gaining convictions on abusers Mm -hmm. because uh, when you see this person, you know, and what they've been through and there's, you know, they're physically hurt and they're crying, it's much more impactful than taking a written statement, you know, And then people go back on those the next morning and stuff like that. And the other one that's super interesting was the rate of continued abuse dropped. Mm -hmm. It turns out, like, when police would come to the call the first time, then they leave or something, you know, this is before the laws where they have to arrest the abuser on site. Of course, the abuser is trying to intimidate the other person not to testify against them. So you may get secondary abuse calls where mm-hmm. police, uh, they actually learned they would do the interview that night. And then they would tell the abuser very clearly, hey, we're done. We have what we need. Like They're sending a message. Mm-hmm. There's no point in intimidating anyone. Mm-hmm. Like we have all the evidence that right, we need. That we need and everything. So those are in good positions. What about the impact of all these videos you know, there's been whole TV shows of them, of police, and it's usually the terrible things or the weird things like a deer jumps on the hood or something like that. When you have these, when there's so many disturbing videos where it's clear something that the, the police escalated it far too quickly, only because I feel the police should never escalate. Like, even if citizens are being awful to them and but not violent, there should be almost no Reaction. I know that's difficult to say. I'm not a police officer. How do you think that impacts that? Well, it's a bit tricky because even if police are doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. it's still not pretty. It's not pretty. I mean, when police are using force on someone, it's disturbing to say the least. And that's if it's fully justified. And if it's not justified, look, you know, police are humans too. and, And sometimes they're making mistakes or they're escalating things up. So it's, I think overall it's very helpful because it's giving people context of the challenges police are dealing mm-hmm. with. And we are very much focused over the next five to ten years in taking the video feed and now using it for training and feeding mm-hmm. it back to officers and right. helping them, you know, learn from how they're interacting and looking at issues like, you know, we talked about racial bias and other things. Like I think even the, the critics in this space would say a lot of it is unconscious bias that, you know, mm-hmm. officers don't uh, self-identify as racists, mm-hmm. but, you know, these things are happening. And so the degree that you can use these as training tools to come back and, and help officers identify and learn and know they're going to be held accountable, you know, I think there's just so many opportunities to continue to improve the system. Do you think being watched minimizes bad behavior? A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, the observer effect in general has is, is been pretty well documented that mm-hmm. uh, human beings who are being observed or who even believe they're being observed uh, behave better. So why the spate of sort of really disturbing videos? They're, you know, the ones at the car stops where it's clear the officer escalated it. There's been lots of those, it seems like. Or they said it happened this way, and then the video shows completely the opposite. Well, you know, there's 800,000 police officers. Yeah. And with 350,000 of them wearing cameras, you are going to have some where, you know, maybe that officer's having a bad day and they mm-hmm. lose it or just bad judgment. So uh, I tend to look at it as sort of a glass half full that, mm-hmm. you know, given the huge number, there's a relatively small number of videos that, that go out of control, but those tend to get all the yeah. attention, right? We don't see the 300,000 videos a day where officers are doing the right thing. You see the few where it goes off the rails. They could put those up. Yeah, but, you know, who's going to watch them? <laughs> right? Lots of people. <laughs> uh, people watch Ring videos, but it's always people stealing your packages, which is interesting. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so I want to get into, in the next section, talking about facial recognition. I just want to stand clear, you don't want facial recognition technology. I just interviewed Andy Jassy from Amazon, which makes recognition, uh, which is a, a facial recognition program. There's lots of them around. You do not want them in these cameras. Well, I think it's a little more nuanced than All that. Right. I think it is a complicated 
and powerful technology that has risks of abuse and risks of inaccuracy. Mm-hmm. And our approach has been, look, if we look at it right now, the accuracy levels that we could deliver are not high enough. And the racial disparities, that is an explosive problem. If mm-hmm. you get it wrong and a police escalate and use force on somebody, and God forbid somebody gets hurt or killed, that is catastrophic. Mm-hmm. So that risk alone has made us say, we're going to hold off. The risk of a bad outcome is not worth it today. Then there are also, so we formed an AI ethics board right, to help you us did. think this stuff Explain through. That. Well, basically, everything we do can be abused, mm-hmm. our company in particular. Right. Taser weapons, cameras, data. Right. There's privacy issues. And look, we want to be proud of the work we're doing. And we think that getting it right pays big dividends. Police ultimately are accountable to the public and mm-hmm. the elected officials. So in the case of face recognition, there's the accuracy issues, there's the bias issues, and then there are legitimate privacy and search concerns. Like under what circumstances should police be searching people's faces against the database? And I think most people would agree, if you're in an airport and they're searching against the terrorist mm-hmm. wanted list, everybody agrees. If they're at a protest, and they're scanning and logging everybody's face and retaining that data in a government database. Like, everybody agrees that's a bad use. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole bunch in the middle. Uh, and I think uh, Brad Smith from Microsoft just wrote his book, Tools and yes. Weapons, mm-hmm. about the need for some regulatory guidelines. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one where, you know, how do you interpret the Fourth Amendment when it, these, right. this technology was Unlawful unimaginable? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so in our case, I'm not saying that never. I could envision when if face recognition gets to 100% accuracy, then it probably do a better job than a, a police officer in helping them understand the situation. So it could be a very valuable tool. Right. But we also just need to then understand what is the right level of surveillance within society. I don't believe it's zero, mm-hmm. but I don't believe it's pervasive we don't have great answers to that yet, and so we would rather take our time and get it right. You do realize this is unusual and mature on your part. <laughs> I just, like, a lot of the people I interview are like, yeah, we're just going to roll it out. I mean, Andy and I had this back and forth about, you know, we're not responsible for the platform, and even if there are mistakes, I wouldn't put out a product that had not a hundred, in that area, you know, not be, being worried about that issue of misidentifying people. I think we're more sensitive to it because every product we do is steeped in these problems. When Mm -hmm. we launched the first taser weapon, Mm -hmm. for example, there was concerns about, well, what if criminals start using these? Mm -hmm. So rather than say, that's not my problem, we looked at that and said, well, that is our problem because it would be catastrophic for us and society. Look, I don't want to be waking up in the middle of the night reading about it. Like a criminal saying that's a cop, that's an undercover cop or whatever. So we we basically, we started serializing our ammunition. When you shoot a taser, it sprays the area with confetti printed with your serial number. Mm-hmm. That's so we can know who shot it and hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we have learned that doing the right thing, this is going to sound trite, but doing the right thing pays long-term dividends. And in our business, we can't afford to get it wrong. Uh, and I respect Amazon. Uh, I, I love the company. I'm a customer. You know, most of what they do is pretty innocuous stuff. And so... This is, I think, a little bit of a newer area for them. And and in most tech, it's like, hey, caveat emptor. In the public safety space, I tend to take a view just from our own experience that it pays to be careful and take your time a bit. Okay. We're here with Rick Smith. He's the CEO of Axon, which is the maker of uh, body cameras that police use and also tasers. He's also the author of a book called The End of Killing, How Our Newest Technologies Can Solve Humanity's Problem. We're going to talk about that book and also some issues he's had with Amazon, not just around the facial recognition software, uh, when we get back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Rick Smith, the CEO of Axon and the author of The End of Killing. Uh, Axon makes body cameras, tasers for uh, police officers and and others that I never thought of criminals using. Uh, I can see them anybody using a taser, but not a body camera. But of course, if facial recognition was in there, it would be very useful for criminals to use those. 
or to identify different people. But let's stick to police officers. So you said somewhere between zero surveillance, zero and 100 percent, like there's somewhere in there. Where do you imagine it's going? Because it seems like facial recognition is going to be rolled out everywhere. Obviously, in China, it's sort of the dystopian worst-case scenario, but it's not unknown here. There's cameras everywhere in this country. Yeah, so if if we look at the arc of history, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite authors right now is Stephen Pinker, uh, you know, in his book, Better Angels of Our mm-hmm. Nature, he documents sort of the decline in violence in human society. And a lot of that is because, look, we delegated to the government the use of force on our behalf mm-hmm. for the most part. Right. Uh, I mean, in the old days, you used to carry a sword and you'd fight with anybody who right. you know, you looked got, at you right. the wrong way. Right. So the, the right level of surveillance, I think, is, again, it's complicated. I don't think we can go back to the 1950s. There's cameras everywhere. You and I have them on our phones right now. Mm-hmm. You know, businesses are putting them up. People are putting them on their doorbells. I don't think we can go back. So I think the... The simple answer is— we will go back. We but, could, but we will, won't. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I would even difference. go, I don't think we could. Uh, right. But I, I would say the the challenge then is, okay, there's a ton of data. The answer is not going to fit on a bumper sticker. Like, yes, cameras, no cameras. It's much more nuanced. How do we handle the data? How do we make sure— Like in my neighborhood, if we're using video to capture violent criminals or even people are stealing things, great. If we're using it to discriminate when somebody— you know, is of a different ethnicity, shows up in the neighborhood. Sure. Honestly, that's terrible. Ring. There's um, a comp complaints around Ring doing that. So, uh, you know. Or next door. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about data privacy, data security. In particular, I think for police, you want really robust logs around who's searching this. When are they searching it? What are their justifications? You're going to want good oversight so that it's not personal vendettas. You hear stories of like a police officer running vehicle searches on his ex-wife's boyfriend. Yep, yep, yep. You know, yep. Um, they I did think, that at Facebook, too, in the early days. There was That happened uh, because the data was available. Yeah, so I think putting solid data controls in place, good uh, audit functionality. And, for example, things like two key systems where an administrator needs to approve something, or in certain cases, a court. You should get a court order to do certain types of searches. What's interesting is today, a reason a lot of that doesn't happen is it's just the bureaucracy of government. Getting right. a, a warrant means you've got to go, an officer's like got to go spend hours at a court with a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So that's I think an that's area. that's the point, but go ahead. Well, no, that's, uh, but the, the the practical effect of that got is officers yeah. find reasons not to do it. Yes, they go around. So it. we're looking, uh, actually, Barry Friedman, who's on I my just ethics did a board. podcast with him. Oh, you did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love Barry. Yeah, he's great. Um, he's at the NYU policing uh, project in at NYU. It was great. He, he brings a very different perspective mm-hmm. than I do. He's he a police oversight this. guy. Yeah. But he really educated me on the Fourth Amendment and, and how to think mm-hmm. about this more differently. Because obviously, being around cops all the time, I tend to hear about how everything's just painful and right. they can't do their job. They're so good all the time, yeah. And so at this, I like, well, geez, what if we made it really easy for you to send a warrant to the court? Mm-hmm. And um, and Barry's point was like, that would be fantastic because just the act of asking someone makes mm-hmm. people more thoughtful. Sure, absolutely. So talk about this board because Barry Friedman is someone who is, I wouldn't say it's anti-cop, but he's certainly wary of and like wary of the p- police powers. I would, I would say that's probably accurate. And is watching them, wants policing to be better, essentially. Um, and he operates in NYU in New York. Um, there's been lots of controversies around the police department there over many years. Talk about this AI board. Why did you decide to do this? The fact that you're using the word nuance is fantastic as far as I'm, because I never hear it from tech people, <laughs> so it's a pleasure. But the AI board that you want to do, a lot of people think, oh, okay, he's going to, like, Facebook just announced the Supreme Court of Facebook that's going to watch things. Everyone thinks it's a PR thing. Talk about why you did this. So, all right, so— Because if you have Barry Friedman on it, it's not a PR thing that, no, that I can tell. It's not. Um, it, now, I would say maybe it started as a yeah. bit of a PR reaction. Right. Um, so here, here's what happened. So we have all these body cameras and right. all this video, and we realized, wow, there's a lot of value we could help create from this video. Mm-hmm. So we went out and we acquired two small companies with AI teams mm-hmm. to help us figure this out. And as soon as we did, bang, like the first week we had all this negative media about mm-hmm. how we were going to do facial recognition mm-hmm. and we were going to turn the U.S. into China. And candidly, as we were so wait a minute, who said anything about face recognition? We actually were, when we bought these companies, the first problem we wanted them to work on was redacting faces out of videos because our customers right. have to do that by hand, frame mm-hmm. by frame, super expensive, right. Right? solving expensive problems for our customers. So just average citizens shouldn't be in these videos, right? Yeah, if you're going to release a video, you have to protect the the, P- and do, yeah. the, the idea of the people in it. Right. But seeing that, 
Um, These are bystanders, right? Bystanders or victims. Right. Children, victims. you know, children, et cetera. Right. Um, which, by the way, we go down a whole rat hole. When you talk about, like, police releasing every video, it sounds great. But then there's so much nuance. Well, they arrive to a sex crime scene involving a child. Right. You want to release that video. Right. Certainly, you want to redact all yeah, the ideas. We talked about that, the idea that it takes a minute to release things. You have to, you know, I was like, why don't they release them immediately? It's like, well, you do have, you know, the prosecutors have to build a case. And so you can't immediately release release any video. Yeah, well, and the, Even though the public pressure is on to do so now. Well, well or if a cop's in your house, do mm-hmm. you want a police officer releasing a video of everything inside your house? What about right. your privacy rights? What right. about the people that are most? So it's, it's nuanced. It's complicated. All right, so... We're facing a backlash over face recognition. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we said we, it wasn't even on our roadmap right. to be doing face recognition. Right. Sure, we'd thought about it. but Sure, you have uh, to. So, punchline was I was talking to a couple different people, including Regina Dugan, mm-hmm. who used to run DARPA. Mm-hmm. Um, Worked at Facebook and Google. Yep. I was, candidly, I was trying to recruit her to come on our board mm-hmm. unsuccessfully. Um, she's very busy. But in that process, as we were talking about it, she said, hey, um, you look what they did with the Human Genome Project. They created an oversight board mm-hmm. because, sure, there were lots of ways the Human Genome Project could go wrong. Mm-hmm. So investing in oversight. And uh, based on that idea, we created this ethics board. Um, and I can't tell you, it's really been fun and productive uh, because, look, policing is a divisive issue. Most of the discourse ends up quite polarized. You've got Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, and you've got a lot of, mm-hmm. like, emotion and it's hard to solve problems across that divide. So with our ethics board, we focused on really, it's it's predominantly civil libertarians, although we do have a few police representatives as well. You'd have to have them. Yeah, you got to have that interchange. Right. And frankly, it is, I, I just came yesterday or two days ago from our latest board meeting. Mm-hmm. How often do you have them? Uh, I think about twice a year. Mm-hmm. It, it's a little dynamic as mm-hmm. to how often we need them. But this is turning into a major competitive advantage for mm-hmm. us. Because I have come to so much more deeply understand the position of the critics. Because now I'm no longer talking to cops about the critics. I'm talking to the critics. And when Barry says, oh, here's my problem with the Fourth Amendment in search. Like, I can go deep on that. And he's challenging my thinking. And and Barry is what I would consider a true liberal. Meaning Mm -hmm. open to new ideas and challenging Mm -hmm. based on the merits of the conversation. So if you stay tuned, in the next month or two, we'll be making announcements where we're so fa- face recognition was pretty straightforward. We're not going to do it. It's not ready. Right. But I think we're actually finding ways that we can use ethical design mm-hmm. as a competitive advantage. Right. And I think our board's really excited about this, yeah. too, to say, mm-hmm. wow, this is— th- That's we're gonna have a an big impact. topic, ethical design. I always say, I, I, when I'm talking to product engineers and things like that, I'm like, I, I make a joke all the time. I'm like, imagine it's an episode of Black Mirror and then don't make it or change it. So it's not an episode of Black Mirror. You know what I mean? Yep. Think of the worst thing that could happen with this technology and, and think hard and think how easy or hard it is for that to get to that outcome. And I think the idea of consequences is lost on so many people in technology and, and, or thinking of the ethical implications of things. And the sort of move fast and break things thing, even though Facebook has removed that from there, for example, is still the ethos throughout technology, you know, and then worry about it later. Yeah, I think in our case, you know, I'm a founder entrepreneur. This is my baby. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get to the end of my career like Mr. Nobel and have right. to create a prize to undo right. the damage. Right, right. Um, well, I don't think you're going to get into the Belgian Congo thing, yeah. but yes, but I get your point. <coughs> I mean, we Why is Netethos not in it? You have tech people on your board now. Are they open to that? Oh, 100%. Yeah, you have Hadi. Who else? Hadi Partovi. Uh, so we had Brett Taylor. He right. recently retired. We became right. president of right. Salesforce. He got too busy. Uh, we just added Caitlin Kalinowski, mm-hmm. uh, head of VR at mm-hmm. Oculus and Facebook. The former Surgeon General, Rich Carmona, Mark Kroll, uh, uh, former sure. CTO of a medical company. Right. We've got uh, why, Julie you're Cullivan. To, you're saying it's a, a competitive advantage, but you as an entrepreneur, how does that make you feel? Uh, this I, is an easy one. I love it. Because, all right, when we do things that are controversial, because of this ethics board, I have a pretty good understanding of where the critiques are going to so come from. So you know. At least you know. And guess what? We actually— if we can turn those critics into advocates mm-hmm. for our system, because they're going to say, look, if you're going to deploy AI technology X, you need to be really careful about these things. And when we launch it, we can say, guess what? We've built controls on A, B, C, and D. Right. You've anticipated as much as you could. You can't anticipate everything for sure. Well, and, and ultimately, look, police, again, they report to elected councils. I'm in this to build a business over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And Understanding those issues up front allows us to be more competitive 
and a sustainable How can we get more tech people to think like that? Like the idea of one, nuance, and two, anticipation of consequences. I, I don't know that I could get on a soapbox and tell how other people <laughs> do right, In our case, it's just because the influence, we're so focused in this area. Right. It's just well, you're very, in a more dangerous zone. That you're easier to anticipate the dangers. It's easier. So when do you imagine you can use facial recognition? I'd say when three, I'd say three to five years. So you'll be testing it to see oh, to yeah, get hundred, but hundred percent accuracy is what you did. Well, hundred percent is a pretty high threshold. I, I think. Let me give you an example where we may use it okay. at lower accuracy. Um, let's say we can upload lists of people that are voluntarily added by their families. People with mental disabilities or okay. you know, Alzheimer's, et cetera. And they have the ability to do that. They have the right to do that. Yeah. So if people opt in and police are using it, in that case, if I get a false match, it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. But it might prevent me from, oh, wait a minute, this guy who's acting weird and kind of violent, oh, he's got a mental disorder. We could shift him in the right direction. We think that's a you could accept lower accuracy thresholds than mm -hmm. if you— now, let's say we're scanning against wanted databases where it may escalate things. Right. I think there's a different accuracy threshold there. So opt in. People opt in to the being. Opt in. And what is the consequence of error? If the right. consequence of error is too high, then you're going to have a higher accuracy threshold. And then lastly, using—I want to get to the Amazon thing before we finish—putting uh, driver's license photos in these things, using them as a data set. That's something that nobody agreed to when they took their driver's license photo. How do you look at that? Um, some of it depends on how is it being used. Right. Uh, like if you're scanning somebody for identification purposes, mm -hmm. you know, or they don't have their ID, if you're right. using it to identify them once police have made a lawful stop and they're entitled to inquire somebody's ID, I think that's a different threshold than somebody who's just walking by a police right. officer. Right. It's a really problematic thing. It's just you, the issue is they often don't say. And that's, I think they have, if they want to use it, they need to say. And then... We all have to agree to that being okay, or or some election where we say, okay, that's going to be okay. Yeah, I think that's Barry's. The primary yeah. thing I'm taking away from him is, look, if the democratically elected officials authorize it, great, but they police shouldn't just be say, just yeah. like doing what they can the data because data sets it's are possible. so so fantastic. Um, what do you lastly? What do you think about the uh, cities banning these things? Banning cameras or or the idea of or, or facial recognition? Facial not recognition. Cameras. Well, California, uh, I think, has gotten to a better in more nuanced place. So they started with a ban. I think that's a bad idea just because— This is gaudy cameras. Well, yeah. But over time, like, look, in another 10 years, overturning laws is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And so we may come up with lots of use cases like the Alzheimer's one I shared where police would use it and it, everybody agrees, but now you'd have this law that blocks you. So California's moved towards a, a moratorium, which I think is a prudent— Mm -hmm. Approach a prudent approach. Okay, and do you see a lot that more of that coming from states? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, to be honest, our position most most of the big cities are using our platform, mm -hmm. and and so we've kind of instituted a, pri a private ban, including San Francisco, mm -hmm. L.A., all the big cities in California, at least the biggest ones. What we're trying to do, part of this too, the way we can bring our customers along is say, look, you want us to be careful. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to get this stuff banned. Right. And then we can't use it even for the good use cases. Right. Absolutely. Lastly, you're an author of this book um, uh, gun about, about gun control. Um, you had sent a, a clip of Amazon blocking the books. Talk really quickly about the end of killing. Yeah. So it's, it's actually not about gun control, but it's about how do we, if we want to solve the violence problem, we need to basically invent better things than guns mm -hmm. so people choose to go that direction and we reduce the carnage. And one of the things that's, that's challenging is, look, a lot of the tech companies will do things that are well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. And one of them that affects me directly is they ban ads for sensitive topics. Mm -hmm. So Amazon puts this ban in place in response to all the gun violence. They say, we're going to ban ads with pictures of guns on it. Well, I've got a book about how to end gun violence. It's got a picture of a gun on it, mm -hmm. and they block my ad. And my point is, like, that's actually counterproductive. Right. Um, and we're not going to stop people from buying guns. There's, they're ubiquitous. People know what they are. But when we invent something like a taser that's an alternative to a gun, we need to educate the public. And when Google and Facebook block our, and Amazon block our ads, they actually block our ability to move the market in a different directions. So they're actually locking in the status quo, and they intend to make gun violence better, but I think they're reducing our ability to change it. Yeah, they don't do nuance well, Rick. 
I don't know if you know that. It ha- it's happened a lot with lots of ads, whether, you know, pictures of breasts. When they were trying to do breast cancer stuff, they were blocking everything. They're, you know what I mean? It's an interesting thing. So what would you want from them to be nuanced, to really pay attention to what they're blocking precisely? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think they're well-intentioned, but ultimately it's really hard to— and this is where censorship and free speech comes in. It's just so hard to have a blanket rule about what you censor and what you don't. But in minimum, I think they ought to have like, what is the intention of this? Mm-hmm. And that they ought to have an appeals process. We've tried to get appeals and we just get blocked. Uh, where they say, nope, you're a weapon. Oh, wait a minute, we're a, we're a weapon that's far less dangerous and we're trying to displace deadly weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, nope, policy says, you know, yep. no weapons, no self-defense tools, sorry. Yeah. And it's basically cut off so we can't do any advertising on the online platforms, which... I think slows the pace of change. Right, absolutely. Last question, Rick. This has been fantastic. Um, what do you imagine after Taser? What is the? We're, we're going to be doing a lot on technology of guns and the things where it won't go off unless the person has it, and, and different things like that. How do you see weapons? You talked about we met, it's it's medieval to send a ball of metal into someone's heart, right? It's just medieval. What it would be the weapon of the future for you? So, uh, part of the reason I wrote the book was to rally my customers, my engineers around our moonshot. And that is within 10 years, mm-hmm. our goal, and we will do it, is to launch a pistol that doesn't kill you. Something that's more effective than a nine millimeter at doing what you want it to do, which is stop the person, and yet it doesn't leave a permanent injury or kill them. And when we do that, that's going to be a game changer. I'm starting, and it's it's tricky. Like when you talk to a police officer, the last thing they want to hear is you're going to take my gun. Mm-hmm. You have to be real careful. That's not what we're about. We're going to give you something else because when you go through that door and you have a gun in your hand, that means you've got to make a life or death decision, boom, less than a second. And that is going to impact the rest of your life and you can't take it back. Oops, that was a 13-year-old kid with a cell phone, not a guy with a gun. And I'm finding it's resonating with customers where their their response to me is this, okay, but I'm skeptical. You're going to have to prove that you can deliver something that's as reliable as the thing I'm slinging on my hip right now. Right. but pretty universally, what I'm hearing is, if you do it, then we'll use that instead. And that's, I think, going to be a huge step forward. That would be fascinating. I hope you can invent that. That would be wonderful. And many tech people should help you do so, um, because I think it's the carnage is just so ridiculous at this point. And it's, and it's sad. Uh, it's a, such an indictment on our country that we don't think of things more innovatively going forward. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Rick, where can people find you and your products online? So uh, for the company, it's axon.com, A-X-O-N.com. Or for me, same as my book, endofkilling.com. Okay, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. <laughs>